Hey there, welcome to the What Connects Us podcast, where we explore human connection through storytelling from people in Saskatchewan. Today I'm chatting with Casey Manick to discuss balancing supporting others through emotionally charged times with your own self-care and mental health. I think you'll find this pretty relatable. All right, squad, it's a big day for the podcast because we've officially reached double digits. I can't believe we're already on episode 10. I've been so blown away by the stories we've heard so far that have included battles with cancer and a stolen identity intense personal risk and financial risk to make our province a better place and rumbles with bankruptcy and foster care. The vulnerability of these guests has been so inspiring and I think exactly what a lot of us have needed during this pandemic. Speaking of COVID-19, we are approaching one year since the province's first public health order. Can you believe it? And to say it's been an emotionally intense time would be just an extreme understatement. This might be the perfect time for our guest this week. Casey Manick is a social worker for Creative Options Regina, and both her professional and personal life requires her to support and shoulder her fair share of residual stress. From helping families navigate emotional hardships, to supporting people in immediate crisis, to even dating an alcoholic in recovery, Casey manages some really heavy things. You'll hear it for yourself in a second, but Casey is so relatable, warm, and someone you instantly want to trust, which perfectly equips her for her many roles of support. Casey will chat about her journey in social work and loan us some of her crucial lessons that she's learned about balancing the needs of others with her own self-care. Part of that includes something that Casey is quickly becoming well-known for, and that is her skill of thrifting. She'll chat about why that's important for her own self-care and just exactly why self-care never goes out of style. So let's get into it. What connects us to Casey? Let's find out. Casey Manick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. And I'm excited to start this conversation off the way that you and I had our first conversation, which was about first jobs. This episode is centered around self-care and balancing stressful triggers. And I remember one of our conversations was about the horror stories that came from your first job. Mm -hmm. And... That is from, of all places, Fabutan. Yes. So t- <laughs> tell me a little bit about Fabutan. Yeah, so I worked there for a few years in high school and into university, and it was a great job. I made some of the greatest friends there. I loved my bosses. It was so much fun, but it was also so stressful. Right. And the things that happened were very strange and you know people take tanning very seriously at least back then they did but you know some things that were really stressful was people would you know they'd be like oh it's my first time tanning I'm gonna go for 25 minutes and I'm like okay well (laughs) it's not allowed (laughs) like I don't make the rules here but or I'd be like oh yeah you have to wear eyewear and they're like no I don't want to really but (laughs) especially being a young person working and you know in all seriousness I think in hindsight something that I found so stressful was that I not only was working there but I also had usually two other jobs at least one other job on the go and then I was also a full-time student so I just had like no boundaries no (laughs) self-care no time for myself and it was it was a lot I you know I even think of one time someone had come in because they were had a tanning appointment and the power went out and so obviously the tanning beds weren't working right she was like well why aren't get them working and I'm like I don't I'm sorry ma'am I'm not Sask Power, I don't work for Sask power. <laughs> when I think of tanning final destination yes. what I think of yeah. is is the power going out and I'm locked in a tanning yeah, bed you're like banging on it 100 percent so I kind of I kind of relate to that that woman's story <laughs> yeah that's that's interesting so people would come in and say no I want 25 minutes and my eye wear off even though yeah. like what is a typical tan like 
10 minutes, oh, five like, minutes. Yeah, it depends how many times you've gone. The mm. max is 25, but oh, usually really? five to 15 is pretty common. Yeah, but, and they're like, yeah. I'm going to California tomorrow. I need yeah. I need some bronze. Yeah, it was oh, intense. That's awesome. So before we get into any more conversation, I just want to have a quick chat about who is Casey Manick. Give me some background on who you are so we can better understand your story. Sure. Um, so I'm born and raised in Regina. I lived in Calgary for a brief time when I was doing my master's of clinical social work program out there. Um, I loved Calgary, but I really wanted to come back to the city. Mm. And so now I, I live in Regina with my boyfriend of four years, uh, Mark, and then our little cat, Frankie. And yeah. they're both just awesome. Um, one of my proudest titles is auntie. I have a little nephew and a little niece and awesome. they're just my pride and joy. I love them so much. And I'm also a social worker. So that's what I do for my career. I work for an organization called CORE or Creative Options Regina. And we support some people in the city that um, live with intellectual disabilities. And so we do um, supported living for some folks um, who live on their own. And then we just provide them with a few hours of support a week. And then we also have homes where people live and they receive 24-hour support from us. So my job there is called family support. Um, and I do a few different things in that role. And then I'm also a registered counselor. So Awesome. Yeah. Just juggling a lot of things. Mm. What did you find was the biggest difference between Calgary and Regina? Oh my gosh. Uh, I It just seems like there was always something to do every single night. Like it didn't matter where you went. It was busy. In Calgary? You In mean? Calgary. Yeah. 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 Which was so much fun. Um, obviously I was pretty lonely there. I, I moved there by myself right. and I, I didn't know anybody. Um, I didn't have a roommate. I lived, I lived completely alone. Oh no. Um, I remember some nights like I would, so embarrassing. I would just go to superstore just to talk to the workers. Oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> like I'd be scanning my groceries and I'd be like, hey. What are you up to tonight? <laughs> Want to go bowling Do after? Do grandkids? <laughs> <laughs> I like your hair. Like, I was so lonely. Yeah. But it was, so I, I missed the comfort of being at home with my family and my friends in Regina. But now that I, whenever I go back to Calgary, it feels like home too. And I meet awesome. some really good friends there. So Awesome. Yeah. So let's talk about jumping into being a social worker. Mm. So for anybody that don't, that doesn't know, tell us what a typical day for a social worker looks like. Oh gosh, it's so hard to think of what a typical day would look like because there's so many different social work roles. There's community social work jobs like mine where you're in nonprofit organizations or you could be working in um, the justice system or as a school social worker or um, in management or writing policy. So it really looks totally different for everybody. But if you were to consider what I guess an entry level social work job would look like, right. you would sort of expect to have um, a caseload of clients that you'd work with wherever you are, doing check-ins with them, making sure they have all their basic needs met, connecting them with resources, working through crisis that comes up, or, you know, just working with um, other organizations or or other resources to try to help support that person better, no matter what they're going through. So there's a lot of different, that's part of what I love about social work is there's a lot of different areas you could go into with it. Right. And you can be super flexible. So what about social work made you think that's where I want to go? Where, what inspired you to choose that career path? Oh, that's, you know, I've been asked this question a few times and I don't, I don't really know. Like, I can't really pinpoint it. Growing up, my mom, I remember, would take us to, uh, like, Christmas dinners, and we would help hand out food. Um, my family was always pretty socially conscious. This is probably the most typical social worker answer ever, but <laughs> yeah. growing up, people are always like, they would come talk to me or share stories with me and s share secrets and Sometimes stuff Sometimes at me. the grocery store. Yeah, yeah honestly. <laughs> but I just felt like people were kind of drawn to sharing things with me. So, yeah, 
Yeah. Awesome. Might as well make a career out of it. Exactly. So we'll talk about your current role in a second, but you've had a really interesting career tra- trajectory out of university. So tell us a little bit about that and what life looked like before you, before you started at CORE. Yeah. Um, I always thought it was really important throughout university to be volunteering and working. Um, I heard so many stories about people that got to their final year of social work and then did their practicums and were like, oh my gosh, this is not what I wanted. This isn't what I expected. Right. So I really wanted to immerse myself in tons of different areas to see what would fit best for me. So I've worked in the disability field for quite a while. I did lots of different contract jobs, doing autism intervention and respite and stuff like that. But um, one of my favorite jobs that I had was at an organization called AIDS Program So Saskatchewan, APSS. Mm. Um, that is a harm reduction clinic where we would run a needle exchange program. So oh. um, people that use um, injection drugs would bring in their used needles and I would give them clean ones. Um, we'd talk about different harm reduction strategies. We'd go to schools and talk about what is HIV, what is hep C, how we can be safe if you are using drugs and all of that stuff. So that job was so amazing. It Mm. was right in the heart of North Central at the time. Um, And I've learned, I learned some of the greatest lessons there and I met some really amazing people and it really opened my eyes up to addiction in a different way. Um, Addiction in a professional level isn't somewhere that I've ever really wanted to end up working in. Um, But it was fascinating because at this clinic, I mean, obviously I I was bound by confidentiality, but Mm. you think of addicts and people who use drugs and you have that picture in your head of the person who's, you know, straggly and hasn't showered in days and they're barely getting by. And um, it was shocking because I would see people that I knew. Oh, really? People that I knew from high school coming in. So, and it always, always struck me. I sat at a desk and it always struck me like, why am I on this side of the desk and you're on that side? Totally. You know, we had very similar, seemingly very similar upbringings and and life paths, but what, what shifted here um, and kind of gave me some empathy to see I'm not that far off from other people right yeah that's so true right like you 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 think of addicts and you're like well they've been making a series of decisions mm-hmm. that have led to that outcome and I'll never be that person but if you see people who you shared a grade three classroom with yeah. them there might have just been one instance in their life that took mm-hmm. them down that path and I think it also taught me a lot about not knowing what people have gone through um, and we might think we know a lot about people but we never really know the whole story That's so true and there's even people that we do know really well they might not be sharing things with us and yeah. we have no right to know everything about them yeah. people have the right to keep things to them yeah, you truly see the tip of the iceberg with people and you totally. don't see the struggle it's or so what true. their loved ones are going through yeah. and dealing with things like, exactly. like that so yeah. you at some point you went to Calgary right when yeah. did you go to Calgary for your masters so I went to Calgary in 2015 So it was right after I finished my bachelor's program, which is kind of rare for doing a master's program. Yeah, that that must Mm -hmm. be rare, hey, to just jump in and do the the higher level education. Yeah, and most programs you need usually at least two years post-bachelor degree to get into a master's program. But the Calgary one, at the time when I was in it, um, was just dependent on your hours of employment in the human service field. And since I had been working and volunteering so often throughout my whole program, I qualified for that. So, so what led to that decision to be like, I am going to forego working right away and I'm going to jump right into my master's. Yeah, I actually, so I did work for about a year after my, um, my bachelor of social work and I had gotten a job. Um, I did my, my major practicum at the hospital on the adolescent psychiatry unit. And then from there I made some good connections in the health region and, um, ended up getting hired on, on the mother baby unit as a social worker. I remember my very first client I ever had on mother baby. It was someone who 
um, was struggling with a very lengthy uh, methamphetamine addiction. Oh, wow. Um, ended up using meth throughout their entire pregnancy, and the baby had major withdrawals um, and had major domestic violence issues, so much family involved and family being like, I want the baby, I want the baby, um, and just lots of, lots of things happening. And I remember reading this referral and going to meet with this um, patient and then going back to my office and shaking yeah. and being like, I am not prepared for this. Right. Like I, what theory fits here, you know? And the, and this, this mom was telling me was denying, um, drug use, even mm. though there was evidence that, um, that wasn't true. But I was like, Oh my gosh, like, what do I say? I, I felt so, so unprepared. And the program in Regina for social work is good. Um, it's just very generalist. So yeah. it, it doesn't give you, it, it's the focus isn't on specific clinical skills. So Plus you would never really know what, how you would react to that situation unless you're like thrown into the deep end exactly exactly so I was I guess prepared as best as I could be but it just wasn't enough so I learned on the mother baby unit very quickly that I just wasn't that equipped in my clinical skill set which is an area I really wanted to work in um, so I ended up researching different programs and and found that interesting. one interesting isn't it interesting when you think of mother baby you just think of like oh pink like what yeah. a nice lovely oh, unit this will yeah. be but you actually get exposed to some heartbreaking mm -hmm. situations and like I've got friends who are nurses and doctors that that's a ward that they don't even want to touch because of how the emotional impact it will have on oh. their self-care. Yeah it's really tough and I was very naive too and I felt very unprepared for the amount of stress that I would be under so I kind of started really taking on what I would call vic vicarious trauma at that time mm. um, and that's when my boundaries really started to blur because I would obviously not work on the weekends um, but Monday morning we would get all of these referrals and I I would start feeling really panicky on Sunday and thinking like, what's going to be on my desk Monday? So that was really where I started to feel burnout right away, I guess I would say. And I just thought that was normal. I thought, you know, in, in the social work program, you're told like, it's going to be stressful. It's going to be hard. And so I thought I was supposed to be worried about work every weekend. And I thought I was, it was supposed to consume me. And I thought I was supposed to feel so responsible for fixing things for people. And now I know that that's definitely not the case. Right. And, um, have learned a lot of hard lessons along the ways, but I think that's really where I first started to see the boundaries blur between my work life and my personal life. Yeah. And that's the entire core of this episode. And what I'm really excited to dive into is how do you find that balance between helping people, but not letting it overcome you and feel mm -hmm. like it's your personal responsibility and you're going to let people down. And yeah, I'm really excited to get into that, but let's jump into your work with CORE. Mm -hmm. So it's such a cool organization. Can you tell us a little bit about CORE and your progressive role with it? Sure. Yeah. So CORE has been around for, I believe it's 11 years now. Um, and we're an organization that, like I said, supports um, adults and now youth with intellectual disabilities. Um, and the reason that we started several years ago was due to a gap in services. So um, there were several people in the province who were kicked out of every other group home, who were not allowed to access services for people with disabilities. Um, they were deemed, quote unquote, complex behavioral issues or had, you know, they were considered to be um, really difficult cases mm -hmm. and, and you know, they didn't fit people's mandate or they were aggressive or like outliers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so we had a handful of people in the province who just virtually had nowhere to go, nowhere to live and nowhere to be supported. Um, and they needed a lot of support. So that's where my um, executive director stepped in and they started this, this 
organization. Um, and we started out very small. We just had our office was a little shed in someone's backyard. And now, oh, really? Yeah. Like a shed, like a garden an shed? An actual shed. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. So humble beginnings. And now we support, I believe, over 80 individuals in the city. Um, wow. And then we have, I believe, over 250 employees. So, yeah, we've, we're pretty well known for taking... Um, we don't refer to them as clients. We, yeah. we just say, you know, Mason or Casey or whoever yeah. the, the person is, whatever their name is. Um, but we're really well known for taking on people that are, um, quote unquote, like difficult cases. People right. that have some complex needs, um, lots of trauma. So tell me about your role in family support. So actually, when I started my master's program in Calgary, I was doing a lot of research around... Um, families that have a child with a disability or a sibling with a disability. And I was finding that a big gap in services was them not feeling supported. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times when um, someone with a disability receives services, all of that organization's love and care goes on to that individual, but doesn't necessarily include their family in that circle. Right. And the systems that we work within are wonderful in that they provide services for people that really need them, um, but they can be a little bit challenging to access um, and can be hard for parents to navigate or, or siblings or aunties, uncles to navigate. So I want to frame just how much of an emotional toll this could potentially take on you. So tell me a little bit about what the highs and lows are about your role. Yeah, there's a lot of highs. Um, Just when families feel really supported and connected with us and they feel like they have a seat at the table physically and literally um, and that their voices matter and that their perspective is respected and um, that they're they're able to be an active part of their child's life is really definitely a high for me. Um, Yeah, because you're almost giving them a language in order to mm -hmm. speak with their child about like and really relate to them on that level. That must that's that's awesome. That must feel so great for you yeah like I think of one mom um she came up to me a few years ago and her hands were shaking and she looked all pale and super nervous and she was like I just really want to talk to you about something and I'm you know I don't want to step on any toes and I don't want to rock the boat and I was like preparing for the worst yeah and then I was like okay what okay what is it and then she said I would really like if you guys could send me more pictures of my son Oh, <laughs> and I was like, absolutely, yeah, like yeah. absolutely, it's not a problem at all. I'll text you ten right now. Like, it's yeah. not, that's not an issue. Yeah. Um, but she was so used to bringing up quote unquote issues like like that, asking yeah. for pictures of her son, you know, in in the past, and and being told that that's not. Something that they do. Yeah. 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 So definitely lots of highs over the years, um, and lots of lows. Mm -hmm. I I think. Personally, a low for me is just seeing families struggle. Um, The stress of parenting a child with a disability isn't always really high, but it often is. There's some big challenges that we face with families when they're when they're feeling scared and they're fearing feeling fearful and um, a lot of families all of our families worry about what happens to my child after I die you know what if people don't advocate for him as hard as I do or or what if what if there's nobody here to notice when he seems to be in pain what if they don't pick up on those things so um, that's definitely a low for me is just seeing when families come to us just how hurting they are and um, trying to help help support them with that. And on top of that, you also work as a crisis support worker for mobile crisis services. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that as well. Yeah, so I've been casual at Mobile Crisis for about six years. Um, And for those that don't know, Mobile Crisis is an organization in the city that provides 24-hour 
uh, crisis support. We are available through phones, um, and then we also go out in person in some cir- circumstances. And yeah, it's it's really interesting. I really like that job because you never know what you're going to get. You right. answer the phone, and it could be a fire, and we have to go help people with housing, or it could be um, police calling about domestic violence and a child was present, or right. or it could be someone calling to tell me that they just ate an apple. Like, you know? <laughs> Does that happen? Oh, that's the... Not, people share some really interesting I things. Bet. Yeah. Hey, uh, yeah, you just never know what you're going to get. And yeah. we cover a variety of different um, phone lines. Um, we cover the farm stress line. We cover the gambling help line. We cover mm. the um, child abuse line. We cover the crisis line. So all of those phone lines come to us so directly. They link you to, oh, yeah. so that's interesting. So they advertise it as an individual line, but mm-hmm. they all filter towards the same sort of yeah. like, um, mobile crisis. Yeah. So... These are all very interesting roles. Um, I feel like I like we need to go for a drink after this. And you need to like <laughs> tell me all about more detail for each one. But these are also very heavy and emotional roles. Mm. So how do you compartmentalize these emotions and take care of your own mental health as you navigate these roles? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely hasn't been an easy journey. Um, that's been something I've had to work very, very hard at and have had to be very intentional with. Like I mentioned, when I first started on the mother baby unit, it became apparent really quickly to me that my boundaries between my personal life and my work life were very very gray. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even in that wasn't a big enough wake up call for me, actually. Um, I even think of my nephew was born um, almost four years ago now. And I remember when he was born thinking, oh, my gosh, he's going to go to daycare one day. Mm-hmm. I I know what can happen at daycare yeah. sometimes or, um, you know, even just sitting in a room, an event with several people and being looking around, being like, I know the stats on on things that people can face behind closed doors. Like, I wonder who's the one in five. And um, those things that I thought were just normal part of being a social worker, just having that information, turns out it was actually a sign of that vicarious trauma or burnout. Um, And I remember mentioning that to, I can't remember who it was, but I think it was a coworker that I was thinking about those things and they were like, Casey, yeah. <laughs> that's not normal. Right. Like, that's really dark. Why are you thinking well, about You that? say it's not normal, but I see myself thinking those things too when you're exposed to that much yeah. vicarious trauma. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I just, you know, there's a lot of statistics out there that are that we're exposed to and, and we hear horrific stories. I know even on Mother Baby, I would get referrals for the, the deliveries that went that weren't good um, and then having such a tarnished idea of what pregnancy could look like and really having to critically think about that and, and yeah. check my own facts and think about is this true what's the logic here um, but yeah it's been a work in progress in terms of um, compartmentalizing different emotional aspects of my job and not really letting them come home with me too much they still do of course there's some things that of course stress me out and I worry about on occasion but I'd say about two years ago I really had to dive in and and look at what was impacting me and why and do do some work around that so um, you know we're talking about self-care and I think self-care has gotten a bit of a bad rep in the last year. Yeah. Um, and people think of self-care and they think, oh, I'm going to the spa and having cucumbers on my eyes right. and spending $300 for a massage and yeah. all of that. And that can be self-care, but that's definitely not all of it. Right. Um, and for me personally, in terms of compartmentalizing, I really had to look at myself and some of my own thoughts and behaviors. And I had to come face to face with the fact that I'm 
quite a codependent person. Okay. Um, and this is something that's impacted my life in my work life, my personal life, um, with friendships, with partners, with family. Right. And um, I kind of had to learn more about what that meant for me and, and figure out ways to separate myself from that. So I really struggled with feeling responsible for other people mm. and feeling like people needed me. They, you know, my identity hinged on helping others right. or, and even in my personal life, like if I don't say this or do that for this person, they're going to hate me and right. they're not going to want to be in my life anymore. And then I'm going to be alone and all these things. Yeah. So, um, you know, I really had to, to dig into that. And I think something that's really helped me, especially over the last few years, this is going to sound kind of harsh, but realizing we're all replaceable, right. um, myself included. Yeah. And I can be really great at my job. I can be highly skilled at my job and I can love my job so much, but mm. my job is not my identity. Right. Um, who I am is not contingent on being a social worker. Totally. And as much as I love my job and I love what I do, I really had to separate that and, and see that people didn't need me to quote unquote fix them. Right. That wasn't the goal. Yeah. Um, like you're a resource, you're an asset to um, them, but like, they are not going to perish if you exactly. are calling sick the next day. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and same with, you know, coworkers even like realizing like if I don't do ABC, XYZ for this coworker, it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my personal life, realizing other people's emotions aren't my responsibility. Totally. And those were the, the really tough aspects, I think, of self-care and the things that we I don't think we talk a lot about, we talk about boundaries. Mm -hmm. I think that's a term a lot of people have heard and are familiar with, but I don't think we actually talk about what that looks like and and what that feels like and how tough it can be. Okay, let's pause for a second. This entire episode surrounds the importance of self-care and you might be sitting there feeling pretty overwhelmed and wondering where do you even get started. Connexus partners with some amazing organizations that provide support for those looking to prioritize their own self-care. I reached out to Becky Tremblay, who is one of our community engagement associates and someone who works directly with our community partners to ask who some of these partners are. This is what she said. Oh, Mason, we have a number of amazing community partners who provide access to a variety of critical health programs and services that are available online and in person to aid you with your self-care and your family. Like the Canadian Mental Health Association. They recently opened the Hope Learning Centre. They offer free courses on a range of topics. Grab your lunch and listen to one of their monthly mental health lunch bites on topics like making healthy life choices, healing with laughter, or one of our favourites here at Connexus budgeting. And our partners over at the Farm Stress Line provide confidential crisis telephone counseling for rural families. I assure you, it's a safe and non-judgmental environment. They can also connect you with organizations and professionals that best suit your needs and help you through whatever situation you're dealing with. For children dealing with the loss of a loved one, Caring Hearts provides a free weekend at their Caring Hearts Grief Camp, teaching kids coping skills they can return home with to promote strong mental health and wellness for the entire family. For those needing a little extra care and healing, the new Saskatchewan Hospital North Battleford is the cornerstone of mental health services for the entire province. Their personalized programming, now offered in a zen healing environment, is more like a home than a hospital where you, along with your family, get the help you need to get back to living a full life. These are just a few of our community partners we invest in for a healthy Saskatchewan. Thanks, Becky. If you are ever feeling like the weight of the world is on your shoulders and you need someone to help spot the weight, 
please reach out to any of those partners or anyone else that provides mental health support. We're in some intense times and it's important to remember that you are not alone. Hang in there. Let's get back to our interview with Casey. You've talked about self-care a little bit. What's something that you do, like a technique almost, that you remind yourself that it's okay to release this? Yeah, I have quite a few, I guess I'd call them rituals um, or things that I do to like physically separate myself from work when I'm on my way home from work. Um, I have very specific podcasts I listen to, very specific Spotify playlists I listen to. Sorry, radio people. I my boyfriend works in radio oh, and I true. listen to Spotify every yeah. day, but sorry, Mark. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I have very specific things that I do in the morning, getting ready for work and in the evening coming home from work. Um, and also just even sometimes I'll even say out loud to myself, this person will be okay. Mm-hmm. It will be fine. That isn't my responsibility. I don't need to worry about that right now. And just physically talk myself through it. Cause sometimes right. I need to actually say it out loud to right. actualize it. You do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of home, and you just mentioned his name, you were dating one of, I would say, Regina's most beloved radio personalities and just overall people, Mark Johnston. He's really public about his journey about being a recovering addict. What's it like to date or be partners with someone who battles addiction, especially in your day job, you're kind of supporting that those sort of people as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting journey, and um, myself, like I think many people in the world, have close connections to addictions in all areas of my life, and we've all had addictions touch us in some way or another. I think, and um, so I've had experience with addictions throughout my lifetime, and it was interesting meeting Mark because when we first met, we knew each other in high school, kind of on and off, but right. um, when we first started talking, he was only eight months sober, which. Mm. I, I don't mean to say only eight months as to minimize it, but still new. Yeah, yeah absolutely. New and, you know, relapse can happen whether you're eight days sober, eight months sober, eight years sober. Yep. It can happen at any time. So I remember that was interesting for me because when I first met him, I was in a phase of my life where I was like going out a lot and yep. staying out late and all that stuff. And so um, I felt some of that codependency, that guilt of, you know, I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, But I think something that's been really key for us is communication and just really being open and honest about maybe what some of his triggers are or or what he is and isn't okay with in terms of um, drinking or going places where people are drinking. Um, so even for me, for example, I remember one time earlier on when we were dating, um, I think we were at a wedding and I had a sip of wine and then gave him like a peck on the cheek after. Oh. And he was like, oh, I can smell your wine. And I was like, is that is that okay? Like I yeah. felt so bad. And right. he, he said, no, it's okay. It's fine. But you know, he tells a story too. But one time I had a bottle of wine in the fridge and he ended up telling me about a week later, like, can you move that? Cause I've been staring at it and I've been thinking about it. I was like, yeah, of course. Absolutely. So, um, just having that open communication. Um, I actually went to a couple Al-Anon meetings as well, oh, awesome. just to, yeah. yeah, just to see what other people are doing to support their loved ones with addictions and just to kind of see if I was on the right path or if there's anything different that I could be doing doing. Um, but I would say it's, it's been interesting, but Mark's also so incredible about his journey. He Mm -hmm. shares so much. He's so open about it. And I just think I get, you know, I'm just so proud of him for all the impact that he's had on other people through this journey. Absolutely. What's so awesome is just how open he he is Mm -hmm. about it, but not just open for other people to learn, but for you as well. Like a lot of the things that come with addiction is how private Mm -hmm. and an internal struggle it is. Yeah. So I, 
it's it's a blessing for for your relationship almost mm-hmm. that he is so open about it and your communication line is always open about it. Yeah, and I think it's so fascinating just his age that mm-hmm. he is. He's really quite young, and yeah. um, when he went down this journey of sobriety, he was very young. And I think that we just have this culture, especially in Saskatchewan, around yeah. drinking, and and that's just so normalized, and that's just something that we that we do for self care, yeah. right? And um, you know, I think it's this pandemic has just kind of touching back to something you mentioned earlier, but the way that I'm viewing this pandemic is through the lens of it being a collective trauma. Um, And when we're facing a major stressor, like a pandemic, people react through their fight, flight, or freeze response. And so um, for a lot of people, we see the fight response. We see people very angry, backlashing, doing things they maybe normally wouldn't if they were being rational about it. We see a lot of flight in the sense that people are staying home even when restrictions open up a little bit or avoiding certain places even when it's safe to do so and then freeze in the sense of people numbing and we have a lot of people that I think are struggling with addictions pretty silently right now and um, it's just a tough time and it's it's really really hard but tying it back to self-care oftentimes people think you know, a way that I de-stress is I go out for supper with my friends or I go to a concert with them or go to the movies. And so much of what people think self-care is, is around spending money. So I think there's sort of that misconception that COVID has in a a nice way kind of turned on its head that we don't need to physically go out and spend money in order to take care of ourselves and to connect with other people and to maintain those relationships that we have. Totally. And I think you nailed it when it comes to celebrating or it comes to coping or anything mm-hmm. like that, a lot of what we seek out is spending money. Yeah. And something that I want to shift gears a bit towards is something that you do for yourself that I think a lot of people are really interested about mm-hmm. is that you do thrifting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something you are super passionate about. So I'll let you introduce it and tell us a little bit more about what thrifting is. Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, so thrifting has always been a part of my life. My mom's a big thrifter. Right. And I remember going to the thrift store with her when we were little. She loves antiques. We would drive hours to go look at a crock. Like, yeah, <laughs> we did big. A tri- crock? Yeah, she loves crocs. She listens to this. She'll probably laugh because okay. our whole house is full of crock Like pots. crocodiles? Like, no, no. <laughs> Like what is a crock? Like a crock pot. Like oh. it's like a, I think it's ceramic. Right. Like, <laughs> okay, good to know. She has so many of them. They're her. She calls them her treasures. Okay. So we've always thrifted. Um, it's been like a big part of my life growing up. And, and thrifting is like going to like a value yeah, village. Value village, Salvation Army. Than, uh, Lululemon or yeah, something like that. Garage yeah. sales even. We did lots of that growing up. Very cool. And yeah, basically just buying second hand is mm-hmm. is being is thrifting. Thrifty, yeah. yeah. And uh, so yeah, it's been a big part of my life, and I definitely went through a phase I think we all did where um I was like oh I don't like that that's not cool I want to wear Roxy and I want to wear Billabong (laughs) and have the rainbow belt buckle totally so first hand from below the belt (laughs) yeah Yeah. but I really started getting back into thrifting when Mark and I moved out together so you know part of moving out is budgeting and having um your finances in order or else you're gonna feel it eventually. And so for me, I'd say the first year of us living together, I definitely didn't manage my finances well. Right. And I remember being like, okay, (laughs) this isn't good. (laughs) (laughs) Something's got to give. So I started using a budgeting app and realizing what I had to work with, which was a lot less than I thought it would be. Right. Um, And so I was a big part of my life is shopping. I love shopping. It's something I've always done with my mom. It's something that I find so relaxing. I love going through each hanger. 
I love finding new items and creating um, new new outfits or finding cool home decor and stuff like that. So that is a part of my life that I was like, this isn't a this isn't negotiable. I do want to still be able to shop. I'm not someone who just can't go out and shop, but how do I do it within my budget? Like a budget conscious. Yeah. 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 So I started getting back into thrifting. Um, I'd say that within the last three years here, there's just like a high you get when you find something really awesome. And, um, it's so budget friendly. Like I just posted, I have an Instagram account, little hashtag. Let them know. (laughs) I I'm on Instagram at at thrift with case. (laughs) And what I think is important, I think people should go to it because because when you think about thrifting, like I think, like first time you hear about thrifting, you think, oh, is she wearing like lamb woven sweaters? Right. And Are there holes like and mothballs in it? Exactly. Yeah. But you, like, you showed up today. You're wearing this this awesome blazer, <laughs> and I said, like, is that thrifted? You're like, yeah. Yeah. Like you're you're good at it, yeah. and it's possible for other people. So it's important. Like, go look at Thrift with Case because you can <laughs> see that there's a ton, <laughs> there's a ton of credibility behind what you're saying. And why I want to talk about it is why I think it's so pertinent is because, like you said. People use retail therapy as a method for self-care. So thrifting is not only very budget friendly, but it redefines that value you place in material Mm -hmm. possessions. So how did you get into thrifting from like a lifestyle point of view where this isn't just a, I'm going to try thrifting for a month. How did it become part of your lifestyle? Yeah. So, you know, trends always kind of come back around and it is, it's just something that I think um, we just don't know enough about. And there is, like you mentioned, a lot of misconceptions about thrifting and people think that it's for um, people that can't afford other clothing. And there's and holes like that. In, the, yeah. in the sleeve or exactly. something like it's, that. Exactly. It's yeah. gross. And, yeah. you know, one thing I will say is a lot of people ask, like, well, how do you how do you get past just getting in the store and the smell? Like, a yeah. lot of people think this, the store smells bad. And, you know, I always say it's just everybody's detergent and their house smells coming together. If you had 50 yeah, perfumes, they would smell bad, right? Yeah. So um, just kind of getting more comfortable with actually going there and just, you know, maybe you're just going to look at sweaters. Just yeah. kind of keep it small and and start there. Um, but yeah, and I, I think just with the self-care piece, there are ways to care for ourselves and our needs that aren't just about doing things outside of our house or spending money, but just really looking at what what fills your soul up and what helps you feel better. Right. For me, I'm not someone who in the morning I can read five affirmations and meditate for 20 minutes. That yeah makes me anxious just thinking about it. (laughs) Um, So, so those are things that don't work for me, but they might work for other people. So I think it's really about being, you know, self-reflective and looking at, at yourself with that critical lens, not critical in a bad sense, but you know, what, asking yourself, like what triggers me, what makes me feel upset, what stresses me out, and then trying to get to the root of that and finding a solution there. Right. And also thinking like, what makes me feel good and why does it make me feel good? Because there are psychological studies out there about why shopping makes people feel good. Mm -hmm. And it's not the price point. Like some people feel like, well, I just bought this jacket from Lululemon Mm -hmm. and it was $180, but people can feel that same sense of that same high by buying a jacket for like $15. It has to do with like how it makes you feel when you put it on, things like that. So yeah, I would, I challenge anybody listening to this podcast right now is to think like, what was your last purchase? Was it because of the dollar value that made you feel important that you were able to spend that, that amount of money on it? Or was it because the look and feel and how it made you feel personally, because you could find that for cheaper probably. Absolutely. And you know, just, you were talking about how there's studies around that and just, you know, speaking about the theme of self-care in general, um, there's also a lot of studies around the fact that it, it doesn't matter. It does matter, but it's not necessarily the money you make or your weight or the clothing that you wear or the color of your hair, or any of those things that 
uh, contribute to happiness and well-being yeah it's the quality of your relationships yeah so it doesn't matter like and, and i know it's hard we all get caught up in that you know comparing yourselves to the joneses or whatever the yeah. saying is and yeah. getting on social media and especially now with i think in the pandemic you know realizing like oh why does that person look like they have it together and over here i'm at home having my third breakdown for the year yeah that, that's not that is okay that's me. <laughs> that's a person i was like that sounds very relatable story. right now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know i i would be at home like having these little these little moments and then seeing people online being like oh i just organized my pantry and, yeah you know but trying to remind ourselves that that's Don't social media yourself. is so fake yeah, yeah for yeah, sure yeah. and and financially like you know i think everyone else gets caught up in this too but like oh why do they have this and that and i'm like using the flip app to budget like why <laughs> yeah. you know why, why are they doing that and i can't do that but also realizing that there's always so much more kind of coming back to the beginning right. of this this interview but there's always so much more going on for people than what we realize totally. you literally see the tip of the iceberg and mm -hmm. i forget what the actual quote is but people broadcast like their best parts of themselves yeah. like a billboard on social media yeah. but you don't see what's behind that billboard exactly and a lot of the times people do that to cope yeah and exactly. to get through some things to make them feel more confident yeah that's a huge part like of self-care too mm -hmm. is to knowing when to put down the phone or the perspective of, sure. of how to scroll and what yeah. that means for sure. Boundaries are so key. And I just actually saw this quote today and it said, um, walls keep people out, but boundaries show them where the door is. Nice. And I thought that was so yeah. key, especially, you know, with social media and being so accessible on our phones. Like I have my work emails on my phone and I can, I, I text people that I work with on my phone and, um, you know, just having those boundaries in place. And I, I we, we could talk about boundaries forever, but mm -hmm. I encourage people to go out and really actually look into what they mean and mm -hmm. you know coming back to kind of um like my social work hat a little bit but um we get into those those patterns and they're really tough to break once yeah. we're once we're in them um and there's this cool concept called um neuroplasticity i'm getting really nerdy wow. right now but it's the concept that you can change your neural pathways and and the ways that you respond you know a lot of people will say well i just this is always the way i've been and i can't yeah. help it or this is just how i feel and i can't help it and that's um true to some degree but you can actively change those things with with intention and effort totally. so um i think self-care is is the same too we might think that oh the only way i feel better is if i go for a drink with my buddy or or mm. if i um sit and watch netflix for five hours and, and eat chips like sure that helps sometimes but if those are just the patterns we're getting into and they aren't actually helping fulfill us, then they're not really going to be that effective. And I think what we just learned this year is that we're so used to taking on self-care because of our own bubble, like mm -hmm. things that are happening in our internal environment. Yeah. This year, there have been some heavy things happening in our external yeah. environment that is actually limited people with their things that they cope with. Mm -hmm. So what I think is important about self-care is that if you use social media to kind of block out how you're currently feeling internally. You have to be careful now because there are so many different things in your external environment right now that could trigger you back and forth, almost like a ping pong effect yeah. of just constant your self-care being at risk. Absolutely. Um, even Mark and I were watching the election uh, a while ago and yep. I won't get into politics or anything, but um, it went... <laughs> Mark's going to laugh if you listen to this, but he was getting really heated about this thing happening with the election. And, um, 
um, I was looking at my phone and he's like, oh, you're not even listening to me. And I was like, I'm going to be honest. I can feel my heart racing. Yeah. Um, I'm feeling a little panicky right now. And I, I need you to stop talking. I about need to this. play Candy Crush for yeah. a little bit. Like Mark. I, I'll come, we'll come back to this. It's important. But I, right now I really just need a moment. I and need then to he, escape for a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. he was like, okay, okay. And then we circled back. But I was like, yeah. this is a boundary I have to put in place right <laughs> yeah. now. Cause I can feel myself getting anxious. Absolutely. <laughs> And it comes back to that that conversation about boundaries and mm-hmm. where, the, where the door is. Yeah. So for someone who specializes in self-care, what kind of experience have you had to draw on to navigate this past year and tw- the p- impact of 2020? Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting an interesting year, um, especially in our home. So Mark and I are typically very busy people. Um, and I think that we've both learned and we've talked about this a lot over the last year is that our, our busyness wasn't great. Um, we were both quote unquote busy, but as everyone always says, you know, busy is is a mindset. You can make time. Um, and it was interesting because we actually never sat down to eat supper ever. Mm. Um, I think in the three years at that time that we had lived together, we only ate supper together at home, maybe, maybe 10 times. Um, and now we eat supper together pretty much every single night. And, um, we've really both realized that, you know, I touched on it earlier, but my job isn't my identity. Um, my job can come and go. I could get fired. I could lose my job in the pandemic. We're realizing that happens a lot. Um, I love my job and it's a huge, it connects a lot to my values, but it's not who I am. Um, who I am is based on my, my friendship my partnership, my family. Um, and, and I've really learned over the last year that those are the things that matter. And I need to be more intentional in my effort that I put in there. Well, you said something awesome earlier. This earlier, this interview was about how your self-worth is almost, um, made up of the strength of your relationships. Mm -hmm. And so I think COVID it impacted lots of people's relationships. Obviously we can't go out and have beers or anything mm-hmm. like that, like we used to, but it really gives you an opportunity to invest in the people that are close to home. So yeah. the fact that you and Mark can now sit down and have conversations in different ways that you didn't yeah. have before could definitely contribute to a stronger self-worth because of that. Totally. I think that that the things that we thought that mattered were, we're realizing really don't. Totally. And um, the things that do matter, um, like our connection with people is, is where we have to kind of put our efforts. Totally. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Care and support are two things that have been so prevalent during COVID-19. Do you have any self-care tips or advice for any listeners or anybody, whether it is running on fumes because of I'm providing so much support, I'm a healthcare worker, I don't mm-hmm. know how to release myself from this job right now, mm-hmm. or even people who are like, I don't even know how I'm going to pay my mortgage. What kind of self-care tips could you recommend to balance the stress and trauma right um yeah that's so that's a tough one and it's so unique depending on that person um but i i always come back to what is in my control and what's not and that's a very simplified way of putting it um but essentially you know, I would spend a lot of time worrying about, well, what if not other people aren't wearing masks or, or what if this person's doing that? And I just can't control that. So focusing as much as you can on what you can do to keep yourself feeling good and feeling safe and feeling supported. Um, and I, I really do think of this as a big trauma for people and especially people who are working like healthcare workers, um, first responders, um, disability support workers, right? People that have been actively working throughout this. Um, it, it is so stressful and really 
coming back to to your basic needs of um, what what makes you feel nourished, getting s- good sleep, um, having those co- conversations with your loved ones if you can. Like let's say you you have children, um, talking to your partner if you have one about like, hey, this is where I'm struggling. I need some assistance with this. If it's if that's safe for you to have those conversations with right. them, um, but really reminding yourselves that it's not selfish to look at what you need. We, I always say to my, not my employees, they're not my employees, but my coworkers, I guess, but people that I do training with and stuff. But I say, um, in this field and in every field right now with, with the pandemic where you're working with people, it's not a matter of when you'll burn out or it's not a matter of if you'll burn out, but when, if Mm -hmm. you're not taking care of yourself. Um, and you could be the most the most kind, caring, well-intentioned person. But if you aren't taking care of yourself, then that won't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, I think, like I've said earlier, self-care is kind of like, it sounds like a cheesy topic now. And people think yeah. like, oh yeah, yada, yada, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I really encourage you to sit down and focus on yourself for a while and mm-hmm. and what will help fill up your cup. Um, because it's it's impossible for us to look out for others if we're not looking out for ourselves. It, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It is a marathon. Yeah. I remember yeah. thinking back, being like, oh, this will be like six weeks <gasps> and then I'll be back. Yeah, it's 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 tough. And I think in, in terms of self-care in general, not even just in a pandemic, but if you're someone that you do have stressors, like we all do, whether you're in school or whether you're parenting or, or you're going through um, struggles, like I was just listening to Megan's podcast with you, like infertility is a big mm-hmm. struggle for a lot of people. Um, but it, whatever it is that you're going through, if there's a stressor in your life, you need to figure out ways to treat it like that marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or else you will you will burn out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great insight. So last question, and I want to kind of tie back this entire interview. I feel like we've approached a bunch of different topics, but I want to ask you, reflecting back on your first day at the University of Regina in your first social work class, or the young girl working at Fabutan <laughs> thinking this is the most stressful job of my yeah. life, compare them to Casey in this present day. What have you learned about yourself? Oh, gosh. Um, I would say I've learned that I'm more capable than I thought. I have a lot more confidence now. And um, I struggled a lot with imposter syndrome in Mm. my master's program, especially. And imposter syndrome is, am Uh, I really the one to be here in this moment to help these people out? It was about six months into my program where I was like, oh, I don't think they're going to kick me out. Right. I remember thinking like they got the wrong name. Yeah. Like maybe they'll figure out that I'm not supposed to be here. But right. um, I had very little confidence in myself. Um, confidence is still something I think every person struggles with in different areas. But especially with work, I felt very little confidence. And now I, I wish I could just go back to Casey back then and say like, it'll be okay. Yeah. And, and take your time. There's no rush. I remember feeling like there was so much pressure to be at a certain place at a certain age and be achieving certain things by a certain age and, you know, getting married by this time or having kids and all these things. And I wish I could say like that there's no such thing. Um, Take it at your own pace, do what feels right for you. Um, And I would really, I would say to her, like, trust your, trust your gut, trust your intuition, do what feels right. Well, Thank you so much for sharing that part of your story. I feel like social work is such an important field of work in any time, but this year more than ever, when we're Mm -hmm. all surging and we're all going through these these traumas and self-care is so important. I feel like you just have such great expertise and experience that I'm I'm really grateful that you were able to share that with us today. 
but you're not done. Uh, okay. We have some <laughs> some speed round questions in order to connect with you on a different level. So you haven't seen these. Mm -hmm. These are 10 questions that are going to sideswipe you and we'll learn more about Casey outside of social work, Casey. I'm nervous. You talked about your cat. What is the weirdest thing that your cat has ever done? <laughs> <laughs> he does weird stuff every day. Right. He's honestly the strangest cat. One time uh, last winter, Mark and I were um, Airbnb in our condo because my parents were living in Arizona. So okay. we were living at their house in the North End where I grew up. And nice. um, Frankie, he went into the laundry room and the roof is unfinished. And he jumped up on top of the fridge in the laundry room and then went into the rafters and then I was screaming and like freaking out and he was like Meow. oh my gosh and so I was like shaking the treats and like crying <laughs> yeah. and like Mark's like it'll be fine I'm like what if he falls through the wall and then yeah. I rip the wall out but yeah he just does weird stuff all the time and he's yeah I could talk about him forever but that's one that comes to mind but he's just a very he hates the toaster yeah whenever I use the toaster <laughs> he has a meltdown like right. he cannot stop screaming <laughs> the whole time the toaster's on so and every day I'm like it's okay I toast every morning but my cat hates yeah. the vacuum, and I feel like that makes sense. But yeah. a toaster, the toaster. As yeah. soon as I hit the like, ding, he'll be like, ah! <laughs> yeah. no, it's gonna pop. <laughs> oh, that's great. Next question: What's on your nightstand? Um, always a cup of water, um, contacts, glasses that I haven't renewed the prescription for in eight years, and they <laughs> aren't effective right now. Um, <laughs> that's your like contingency pair in case there's a fire. Exactly, yeah. I can barely see through them. Right. Um. And probably always a used Kleenex because I was just telling yeah. you before this that I have post-nasal drip and <laughs> chronic sinus issues. So right. Mark's always like, that's so gross, it's a used Kleenex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do. It's true. Um, okay, next question. Biggest difference between you and Mark? Biggest difference? I would say he's an extrovert through and through to his core, and right. I'm not. Yeah. I don't know what the term is for a mix between an extrovert and an introvert, but yeah. I definitely need time. I think it's like by an myself. omnivert or yeah, something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, what's your anthem? Rasputin. Is it? What? <laughs> Really? It's my favorite song in the world. Gets me so jacked up. I love it. It's so powerful. <laughs> it's powerful. It makes me feel confident. <laughs> I know all the words. I can well you know I'm all getting the words? old now, so my knees don't let me do that yeah. dance anymore. But I know all the words. Well, to it's Rasputin. a staple at every wedding. Exactly. So, wow. Oh, I'll have to send you some pictures of me doing the Rasputin dance. <laughs> I rem I actually remember thinking at a wedding, whose whose song is this for? It's me. It's I always you. request it. <laughs> What song reminds you of your childhood? My childhood? Um, I would say, oh, what's the title of it? It's a Shania Twain song. And it's that one where it's like about female empowerment. All Shania I, songs are I, about I female know. empowerment. My mom always, I remember my, it was so cute. I remember my mom would drive us and we'd listen to Shania CDs. And there was that one. Is that Man, I Feel Like a Woman? Oh, is it the one where she's like, you mean astronaut or I can't remember oh, how yeah. it goes. You could be Brad Pitt. And I remember yeah. my mom driving driving and being like, you can be anything you want to be. <laughs> oh, wow. and, she, and she always was playing Shania. That's the song. That's yeah. her CD is always in my head for good, my childhood. Good for Mama Manic for yeah. turning that into a teachable moment for you. And last question, what connects us? Um, empathy, I think. Being able to recognize that we're all just human and we've all got our own stuff going on. And even I've been listening to your podcast all week and 
every single person that I've listened to, I'm like, oh, there it is. Like yeah. they say something that I'm like, oh, I want to hang out with them now. Or yeah. I, I can see where they're coming from. And it, you know. Isn't it amazing? Like yeah. typically when I, when I ask these questions and people are like, how are they answering these questions so fast? Well, there is some dead air I have to edit out of the podcast. But whenever I ask the question, what connects us? People respond with very thought out, deep answers. And every time you listen to it, you're just like, yeah, that's bang on. With yeah. the exception of Craig Reynolds, who literally just said, well, chords are connecting us at the moment. So yeah. very literal. Yeah. 100%. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, empathy. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's it, Casey. Thank you so much for joining us. Like I said, self-care is something that a lot of people kind of scoff at, but it's so important, it especially is. this year. And all of your experience on being a social worker, um, a crisis supporter, things like that that showcase just how important you are to helping others get through some traumatic times in our lives. I think that expertise that you just gave us is is just so important right now. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I hope it helps somebody um, maybe see things a little bit differently or, or turn towards themselves a little bit more. Love that. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the What Connects Us podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. If you like the podcast, please do us a favor and hit that subscribe or follow button and give the post a like, comment, or a share. We'll see you in two weeks. Till then, Casey and I are off to Value Village. Woohoo!